Hey guys, how we doing? I figured since uh, since we had all the guys here, we go ahead and have a uh, clean free corporate meeting. So I've changed the content of my talk to um, center around the cleaning of cars. Guys, I uh, it is a treat for me to be back in Phoenix. When I say back to Phoenix, uh, it was 18 years ago that um, uh, I had uh, graduated college, got married, moved to Phoenix, and my wife and I started um, new jobs out here in our life together. And um, I came out to Phoenix looking, uh, searching for a job that... Um, I thought would uh, give me um, financial success and meaning and purpose to my life. And within, um, uh, but God had other plans. And within just a few short months, I found uh, myself uh, in the family room of a, of a man I had never met before who um, was in the business of, of doing that and of doing this. And uh, invested his time and his life in me to um, open up the word and get me into the word and introduce spiritual truths to me that uh, I had not been exposed to before. So uh, Phoenix, uh, just having started my life here with my wife and having really started uh, and got my spiritual footing here just has a, uh, a real warm and special place for me. So it's, been a, it's just been fun to, to be back. So. Thank you for having me. Um, guys, uh, Trevor had asked me to speak on the priesthood of the believer. Well, what is the priesthood of the believer, right? Guys, I would suggest to you that the priesthood of the believer is the biblical truth that all followers of Christ are priests of God. All Christians are priests. We in this room, as followers of Jesus, are Christ, as Christians, are legitimate priests. And I submit to you guys that our understanding of this truth will greatly impact not only how I live my faith out and what that looks like to me, but it will also impact a man in how he lives out every day of his life. How he lives out every minute of every day will be impacted by his ability to understand the priesthood of the believer, by his ability to understand that he is a priest of God. Regardless of our vocation, men, we are all priests and we are all called to do priestly work. What's a priest do? He talks to men about God and he talks to God about men. Guys, a priest has direct access to God. A priest is God's chosen man. And in a, in a short bit, we're going to look at what the historical priesthood has looked like throughout history, and if there's one common denominator throughout every period, is that God is the one who chooses who he wants to be his priest. So it's by divine choice that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are priests. And a priest is, uh, I would suggest, is an agent of reconcil- the message of reconciliation, and we'll talk about that some more, too. As I prepare for the message, I... I stumbled upon this, which I thought was interesting. Um, Martin Luther 
actually thought that the word priest would become as commonly used as the word Christians. And why not? All Christians are priests. But he actually felt like, instead of referring to each other as Christians, like, well, he's a priest. He's a priest of God. found that interesting. But unfortunately, this truth, the truth of the priesthood of the believer, has by and large been neglected from within the body of Christ and within the institutional church. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So if that is our backdrop, um, let me open this up in a word of prayer, please. Uh, Father God, we are um, thankful that uh, in your providence you have us all here together tonight and for this weekend. We acknowledge our utter dependence upon you and that unless you join us tonight and throughout the weekend, unless you are the teacher, unless you give us an ability to open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds to your truth, that we will go away wanting. So we plead with you and ask that you would do that, that you would join us. Um, I pray, Father, that um, the words that cross over my lips would be pleasing to you and that you might be brought glory. Amen. So what is the uh, history of the priesthood? So the priesthood of the believer, excuse me, the priesthood of God, uh, we have three historical, we have three periods of time throughout history. Uh, The first time the priesthood of the individual believer uh, from creation uh, on, we see in Genesis 4, 3 through 5, that Cain and Abel act as their own priests before God, offering a sacrifice. As we move forward in Genesis, Genesis 15, we see that Abraham as well represents himself before God. He functions as his own priest. And this is the way God wanted. This is the way God chose it. This is the way he, in his uh, sovereignty, wanted it to be. So we follow this, uh, this period of time of the priesthood of the individual, individual believer comes up to um, a point in history at Mount Sinai where we have a change. And a uh, little review of our Old Testament uh, history. We know the Jews were in captivity in Egypt under Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't want to necessarily let them go. Um, but obviously through uh, God, through his man Moses, uh, Pharaoh releases the Jews, they uh, leave Egypt, they, part, uh, they pass through the parting of the Red Sea, and they come up to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain, and God gives him what? He gives him his law, right? He gives him his, the Mose- what we call the Mosaic law. And part of that Mosaic law was the Levitical order, or the professional priesthood. God changed that Mount Sinai who he determined was going to be his priest. And he removed the priesthood from the individual priest, from the individual man, excuse me, and instituted a vocational, professional priesthood. Man no longer represented himself, right? Aaron was the high priest. God peeled off one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi, and it was they who were the professional priesthood. Man no longer represented himself, but God had a vocational professional priesthood. And what did the other 11 tribes do? Well, the other 11 tribes supported this new professional priesthood because that was their vocation, right? And as part of this Mosaic law, part of the priestly duties uh, God instituted was how he wanted his sacrificial system to work. And part of that was the 
tabernacle and temple services. So we see here how the, 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 the temple was set up. We see that um, you have the holy place in the outer area. And then that holy place was separated uh, by uh, four pillars and a veil from the holies of holies. And it was that holies of holies is, is where God dwelled. And the high priest would once a year go into the holies of holies and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation, uh, for the sins that they had committed in ignorance. And it was only once a year, and it was only the high priest that could pass through this veil that separated the holy place from the holies of holies. And this period of the professional priesthood, the priesthood of the professional, lasted about 1,500 years up to the point of the cross and Christ. Guys, turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read the first few verses. But this historical system of sacrifice that God had put in place was actually a foreshadowing of what was to come with Christ. It was a tool to help man realize that he couldn't fulfill God's standards, nor could he permanently appease his justice on his own. If man could appease God's sense of justice, the preponderance of sacrifices would not be needed, right? You would no longer need to continually sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats. But we could not do it. Christ was our perfect sacrifice. It was Christ's death that satisfied God's justice. And it was his death on the cross that represented the only adequate and final sacrifice. And uh, let me read with us here in Hebrews 10. Actually, Chris Wolzinski, can you grab a mic and read that for me? Read verses 1 through 4. Okay, Hebrews 10, uh, verses 1 through 4. It says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remainder, a a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Please jump down to verse 10 and read 10 through 14. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Thank you. Guys, turn with me to um, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. And as you turn there, I'll give a little 
give us a little idea of where we are in the, in, in the passage. So we're at the passage, we're in Matthew, and we're at the point where Christ has been arrested, he's been beaten, he is on the cross, and it is the moment before his death. And the Gospel of Matthew records this in verse 50. So we're at Matthew 27, 50. And it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It's important to note it was not taken from him, but it was yielded up. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And men, it was at that moment that that Levitical order, that that professional priesthood had come to an end. When that veil split in the holies of holies, it not only literally split, which it did, it didn't only represent a literal split, it also represented a symbolic split that no longer were the holies of holies kept from us. No longer was the vocational priesthood in place. We as followers of Je- we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus Christ can enter into the holies of holies through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Man again was able to represent himself to God and represent God through Christ to others. Man again was his own priest who talks to men about God and who talks to God about men. Don't turn with me, but two verses to share with you. Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy And find grace to help in time of need. So we're encouraged to enter with confidence through that veil as we stand in Christ before God. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. As if, and Peter, who's he's talking to? He's talking to the body of believers, right? The followers of Jesus Christ. As if he would be standing here today saying, you are a chosen race. All of us are a royal priesthood. John tells us in Revelation 1.6, and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God, the Father. So men, the priesthood was removed from the vocational, professional priest and returned to the individual man. We are a priest of God. Yeah. So, what are the implications of this priesthood? Now that I'm a priest of God, what does it mean to me? Well, I would suggest to you, it means a couple things. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.20. In 2 Corinthians, again, uh, Paul, this is Paul talking to the body of believers in uh, Corinth. The Christians, the priests, and we're going to start, we're going to spend a little bit of time here, so settle in. Uh, but he says in Second Corinthians 5.20, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. 
And what is reconciliation, guys? Reconciliation is the restoring of the relationship, right? Our sin separates us from a holy God. But through Jesus Christ, we have reconciliation. Through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, right? Through his death on the cross, we can have peace with God. And he starts out and he says, we are ambassadors. Well, what about this ambassadorship, all right? What does an ambassador do? Well, I suggest to you guys, if I got a call today and from the sitting president and he asked me to be an ambassador to India, one of the first things I would do would be make arrangements to take up residency in India. I wouldn't make arrangements to take up residency in Washington, D.C., in the political center of our country. An ambassador goes to the country in which he is serving as an ambassador. He lives in a foreign land. And what does the ambassador do? Does he communicate the does he communicate his own will, his own thoughts, his own desires? No. He communicates what? He communicates the will, the thoughts, the agenda of the one who sent him, of his sovereign, and he communicates that to the people in a foreign land. Men, as priests, we are ambassadors of Christ living in a foreign land, communicating the will of our Father, sharing a ministry of reconciliation to those who don't know Christ. But guys, we've got to ask ourselves, are we doing this? Do we view ourselves as ambassadors? Do we view ourselves as living in a foreign land? When I lay my head down at night and when I wake up in the morning and put my two feet on the ground, do I view myself as someone who lives in a foreign land, as someone whose job and purpose it is to communicate a message of reconciliation to a lost world? Do we do it? Back up with me to 16, verse 16. Same 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 16. He starts out and he says, Therefore, not a great, not a great place to start out, because when he says, therefore, What he's saying is, uh, in light of what I've previously said, therefore, I'm going to say this. So, I think it makes sense for us. It behooves us to back up. Let's back up a few verses and see what he actually said. So, we go back to 14 and he says, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might not long... no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So Paul says, because of what Christ did for us, the love of Christ controls us, right? And because the love of Christ controls us, I no longer live for myself. I live for him who sent me. Then we get to 16, he says, therefore, in light of the fact that the love of Christ controls me, in in light of the fact that Therefore, I no longer live for myself. I live for him who sent me. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Well, what in the world does that mean? Recognize no one according to the flesh. Guys, when we go out in our world, when we go to our jobs, when we go out in our neighborhoods, wherever we go, do we see people... And recognize them simply as people? Do we recognize them simply in the flesh? Or do we see them in view of their eternity? 
When we meet new people, do we no longer recognize them according to the flesh, or do we see them as God sees them? Eternal beings who need to either come to know Jesus or come to know Jesus better. Do we see them as ones, as people who need to hear the message of reconciliation that Jesus Christ provides for us? How do we see people? Do we recognize them according to the flesh, or do we see them as God sees them? Moving on to verse 18. He says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So who's Paul talking about in verse 18? Paul's talking to the body of believers in Corinth, right? He's not at a pastor's conference. He's talking to followers of Jesus Christ. And he says that through Christ, he has given us, us in this room, the ministry of reconciliation. We as a priest of God have been given this ministry of reconciliation. And let's jump down to verse 20 again. He says, and we'll read it again. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He says that he's actually making an appeal through us. God the God of the universe makes an appeal through us to others. So I got to ask myself, guys, guys, is God making an appeal to others through me right now? Am I allowing him to do this? Am I allowing myself to be a vessel through which he communicates his message of reconciliation to a lost world? Am I functioning as an ambassador of Christ, Am I allowing myself to be used in this way? Guys, don't turn there, but I'm going to read the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Jesus says this, says this to his men. He says, go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded to you. Guys, Jesus has been crucified. He's been resurrected. He's walked among men. And now, right before his ascension into heaven, he's talking to his men. And what's the last thing he says? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Guys, I ask you, I ask you, is that a command, a suggestion, or an encouragement? And I I ask you rhetorically, yeah, right, because it's a command, right? He says, go. You go, make disciples. And if we look at that Greek word, go, What it actually means and what it actually is saying is, as you go, make disciples. As you go about your life, be in the business of making disciples. As you go to your work, as you go out in your neighborhood, wherever it is that you go, be in the business of recognizing men no longer according to the flesh, but seeing them as God sees them, recognizing that I'm a priest of God, I'm an ambassador, have been given the message of reconciliation, that God makes an appeal through us, us in this room, to his people, be reconciled to God. So as I go out of my neighborhood, as I go to the soccer fields that my kids play on, I recognize no one according to the flesh. I recognize people as eternal, be- as eternal beings. Guys, turn to Ephesians 4.11, please, if you could. Another Great verse. Ephesians 4.11. Paul's talking to the body of believers at Ephesus, the Christians. 
right? He's talking to the carpenters and the blacksmiths and the mechanics and the constructions and the real estate guys and the car wash guys. He's talking to men in the marketplace. And he says this. He says, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. And who are the saints, guys? We're the saints. We as followers of Jesus Christ, we're the saints. So he's given some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, us, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Guys, we are God's A-team. We are God's plan through which he is going to build his church and reach men. Just like everybody, that group of men that raised up their hands and were affected by another individual that God made an appeal through. We are his A-team, right? We are God's divinely chosen priest that he sends out into the marketplace to represent him. Pastors are there to equip us to do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is not solely the pastor's job. We tend to look as we tend to look at the work of the ministry, the way God's going to build his church and change people's lives as the job of the institutional church or the pastor. And, the, and, and that is this big rock that, that gets thrown into the pond of my community, gets thrown into the pond of the area in which I live. And that rock, when it gets thrown in, it makes, what does it do? It makes ripples, right? It, it makes action on the pond. But as you get out to the end of the edges of the pond, there's not a whole lot of activity anymore. But that's not what God says he wants to do. God says, rather, we're like a bunch of 100 little pebbles that get picked up on the side of a shore, right? And I'm not sure if you ever did this with your kids or if you're out camping yourselves. And what happens when you cast those little pebbles out onto the pond? They spread out like a shotgun, right? And they touch every part of that pond. And, and the whole pond is filled with activity, not because of one big boulder that got sent into the pond, but because of each little pebble. And each little pebble has its own little concentric circle. And guys, we are those pebbles, right? We, if I'm viewing myself correctly, I have relationships and interactions with men that none of you guys will ever have. You guys, living in the same city, have relationships and interaction with men unlike anybody else in this room. Unique to you. In fact, we may be the only representation of Christ that a man is ever going to see. So as I go about my job, I'm doing priestly work to the degree that I'm involved in using the relationships that God has given me for E-squared, for evangelism and edification. I have vendors and employees and customers and employers, customers, I'm in the real estate business, and I was just talking to another buddy of mine, and uh, he's in the real estate business. And I said, I said, if we if I didn't have to deal if we didn't have to deal with buyers or sellers, our job would be great. It would be awesome. But we do have to deal with buyers and sellers, right? And we have introductions and relationships that God gives into our life. And do we see them? Do we recognize them according to the flesh? Or do we see them as men that God has brought into my path as I'm a priest of God, been given the message of reconciliation to impact that man for Christ?
As a priest of God with the ministry of reconciliation, I am involved and engaged in priestly work, whether I'm in real estate, construction, business, medicine, whatever my vocation is, is priestly work up up to the degree that I'm involved in E squared through the relationships that God has providentially orchestrated in my life. And guys, we serve a God, parenthetically, who is in complete control, right? He is not in control some of the time, part of the time, or most of the time. We serve a God who is in complete control and complete sovereign. So if I am thinking correctly as a priest of God, having been given the message of reconciliation, any individual that I run across, any relationship that I have, any introduction that, that I am given, if I'm thinking correctly, that is not a chance encounter. That is a providential appointment, introduction, engagement that God has given to me to steward. Guys, how different, how different would my day look? How different would our day looks look if we went out and every relationship or introduction that we had, we recognized man no longer according to the flesh, but looked at them as someone who either needed to come to know Jesus or come to know Jesus better. How different would our days look? And guys, the scriptures are clear that we don't go to work to earn a living. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, don't worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will put on. Your heavenly father knows these things. But down in verse 33, he says, but seek first my kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. So, biblically, I go to work for two reasons. Because God commanded me to. And because men, I'm a priest of God. And it's an environment in which God has strategically placed me. It's an environment that God has given me to impact the men and have relationships that I can impact for the cause of Christ. Guys, we are no less legitimate than a pastor or a missionary. And if I'm thinking correctly, I actually view myself as a missionary, right? I live in a foreign land. This is not my home. I'm a missionary. I just have to be a missionary whose mission field is real estate. And you just happen to be a missionary whose mission field is whatever field you're in. And guys, the early church, I would suggest you live like this. If you read the book of Acts, it's what they did. But men... We have moved away from this as a body of Christ. To a large part, to a large degree, the priesthood has been returned back to the professional. And guys, the church, I would suggest to you, is a living and breathing organism. It's, a, it's the body of Christ. The church, is, the church is not a building, and it's not an institution. It's people the body of Christ. And the ministry is not serving the institution. The ministry is serving people. It's E squared. So I can, I can go and dig wells in Africa to try to help a community have clean water and it not be ministry. Or I could go to my work And do whatever it is that I do and have it not be ministry as well. Or 
I could go dig a well. And to the degree that the focus and purpose of me digging that well is to build relationships and connect with the individuals so that it gives me a platform and credibility to share with them the message of reconciliation through Jesus Christ. That's ministry. Giving them a cup of clean water is not ministry. Using that cup of clean water to introduce them to Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, that's ministry. Just like me and my job, my job can be ministry to the degree that I'm using the relationships, the credibility that God has given me to build into the lives of men. Let me come up for air before I move on. Any thoughts? Any questions? I like that. All right. Um, so now that I'm a priest, now that I'm a priest of God, what now? What I have is a, um, a list of... Uh, of some things, it's not an exhaustive list. It's my list of things that, now that I reckon myself, now that I recognize myself as a priest of God, and the responsibility that I have to be involved in E squared, right? What are some practical things that I can do to help me as I move along in my life, as I move along towards that priesthood? Now what? Well, the first one, guys, I would suggest to you is that. We need to be a man of the word. A priest is a man of the word. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So as I read that verse, what is it that I need to do to be approved to God? I need to be able to accurately handle the word of truth. How does that happen? Men, I would love... If I could take this Bible and tuck it underneath my pillow at night and lay my head on it and through night it just absorbs up into my head through osmosis and I've tried it and it does not work and it will not work for you. If we are to be a man of the word, it says that we need to be diligent. We need to have focused, concentrated, purposeful intentional effort and time put into understanding and knowing his words. And guys, this is the word of God, right? And we serve an infinite God who has infinite thoughts and infinite wisdom. And if he wanted to, he could fill up this entire chapel with, with book after book after book after book of his thoughts and his ways. But he didn't, did he? He gave us this. So I would suggest to you, it's pretty important stuff, right? Guys, we have free access, authority, and an expectation to know, study, and apply the word into my life and to share it and teach it with others. We need to be diligent to be a man of the word. And guys, what does that look like? You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 55, 8, 9 God says, um, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, and so are my ways higher than your ways. So what's God telling us? He's saying, by your very nature, 
you don't think the way that I think and you don't want to do things the way that I want to do things because my thoughts and ways are higher than yours. So by our very nature, we don't want to do things God's ways. Then I move along in the scriptures a little bit and I come to Proverbs 14.12. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. So, the way that I do think, the way that I do want to do things, it seems right to me. I've got no internal barometer to tell me that I'm wrong. And oh, by the way, it just leads me to death, ruin, and destruction. So guys, I would submit to you that we've got a first-class problem. We don't, by our nature, want to do things God's ways or think God's thoughts. And the way that we do think and the way that we do, we do want to do stuff, it seems right to us. It resonates with our internal spirit, but it just happens to lead us to death, ruin, and destruction. So guys, as I think about that, when I go into the Bible, when I do Bible study, when I spend time trying to become a man of the word, I should expect that I'm going to be challenged and that my true system is going to be violated, right? I don't think like God thinks. I don't want to do things his ways. And the way that I do think and the way that I do want to do things, it resonates with me. It seems right. So when I get into his word, I should absolutely be finding things that, that challenge me, that violate my true system. And guys, my true system, Trevor talked about it a little bit. My true system is how I accept and digest information, how I make decisions. My worldview is how I perceive reality. It's what makes me who I am. And my true system, I would suggest to you, is different than every one of yours. My true system has been affected by the time of history I've been born into, my parents, my experiences. It's been affected by the Word of God. It's been affected by relationships. All these things have through time formulated to have Chris Martin's true system. And each one of your true system is different than mine. But guys, when I do Bible study, when I get into the word, the challenge for me is that as I receive God's word and I become challenged, right? I remove the garbage out of my mind and put in God's truth. And guys, that can be a painful, can be a frustrating, can be a tough process. But I would suggest to you as a man of God, we have an obligation to purge our minds, purge our true system of the junk that we have in there and put in God's thoughts, put in God's ways. And that's how we take on the mind of Christ. That's how we are sanctified and, be, and become more Christ-like. But it's a painful process, right? Because we think we know it all. You know, I love this quote. I want to take time to read it. This quote is from uh, Soren Kierkegaard, a 19th century Danish theologian. So this is written close to 200 years ago. And Kierkegaard says this. He says, uh, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How will I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the place of Christian scholarship. 
Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what will we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Guys, the commandments of God are unambiguous. They are clear. They are straightforward. Jesus tells us that the way we communicate our love to him, he tells us in John 14, four different times in four different ways. He says, he who loves me keeps, keeps my commandments. We are saved by grace through faith plus zero. But if I read the words of Jesus and I read the scriptures, he is concerned about obedience, obedience, obedience. And parenthetically, guys, obedience, excuse me, agreement is not obedience. What I mean by that is um, a lot of times we as followers of Jesus, the body of Christ can have agreement with the scriptures and mistakenly call that obedient. Let me suggest to you, I get, I'm going to get home late Sunday night, and uh, so I won't see my kids till Monday morning. But let me suggest to you, Monday morning I get my kids up, I round them up, and I say, uh, hey kids, I want you to go upstairs, I want you to pack a bag, and I want you to meet me down in the car in five minutes. Um, we as a family are going to go to someplace sandy and warm, and we're going to just have nice, relaxing, fun in the sun. Well, let me tell you, I've got daughters who are 14 and 12, and a little guy who's four and likes to play in the sand. I mean, there would be a sonic boom with the speed of which they would head upstairs. There'd be, the carpet would be smoldering. They'd be moving that fast to go pack that bag. And let me suggest to you that sure enough, in five minutes, I'd go downstairs, I'd get behind the wheel of the car, and my kids would all be there with their one bag, smiles on their face, and we start heading down the road, and my kids might just say to me, uh, Dad, aren't you proud of us? We uh, packed one bag. In fact, it didn't take us five minutes. We were down here in four minutes. Um, aren't we good kids? We obeyed you so well. Let me suggest to you, conversely, I get home Monday, and I say to my kids, um, Hey, I want you to go upstairs. You're staying home from school today. I want you to get your, your oldest dirtiest, rattiest clothes on, um, get some gloves, get your old sneakers on. We're going outside. I'm having 25 yards of mulch delivered and we're going to, I've got edging, trimming, mulching. We've got, I don't think we can get it all done in the day. I've actually rented these, these big, you know, construction lights to illuminate the outside of our house so that we can work into the wee hours of the morning doing all this work that needs to be done. Well, let me ask you, do you think I would hear the same sonic boom with my kids running upstairs? Do you think the carpet would smolder from them running upstairs so fast to do that? No. I can tell you what they'd say. They'd say, Dad, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? I had to get to school. I care about my education. <laughs> but they say, they say, no, what, what, I don't want to do that. Why do I have to do that? That's child labor. I, I shouldn't have to do all this work. I don't want to do it. I don't understand why I want to do it. I don't agree with the fact that I have to do it. And man, I would suggest to you that the degree to which my kids come up to my will and don't want to do it, but vote against themselves and do it anyway, is the degree to which they obey me. When I tell them we're going to the beach and they want to go to the beach, that resonates with their spirit. 
They agree with that. They understand that. They're all on board. But men, agreement is not obedient. And men, why would it be any different with us and our Heavenly Father? Men, we obey Christ up to the point that we say, I may not understand it. I don't agree with it. I don't want to do it. But like Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, your will, not my will be done. You know, we tend to have this thing called cafeteria Christianity where a man goes through the scriptures and as he moves through the scriptures, he takes what resonates with him, right? He takes that which he understands and agrees with and he leaves that which he's not so sure about. He leaves that which he doesn't agree with. And when he gets to the end, all of our traits look different. Not that it ought to be that way, but it's because he has a faulty, we all faulty truth systems. So as I move through the scriptures, if I'm only taking what I, what I understand and what I know and what I want to do or what I agree with, men, that's not obedience. I've got, I don't have all of God's thoughts and God's ways in here. I'm an untrustworthy guy. So being a man of the word, we, we, it, does a, it does a guy well to recognize our situation and to be diligent at being a man of the word. Taking God's thoughts and putting them and replacing them in our mind with our thoughts. Next one, eyes up, look around. Let me move my slide here. What do I mean by that? Guys, as a priest of God, going about my day, going about my business, all the different things that God has me involved in, whether it's hobbies or sports or my kids' activities, it does a man well to be purposeful in his thinking of the relationship that, that God has given him. That when I walk out of my home, I'm recognizing, remembering who I am in Christ, what I've been called to, and I have my eyes up and I look around. This, uh, Trevor had um, put this little uh, card, top 10 list on your card. Men, it does a man, does a man well to sit down and say, okay, God, who have you put in my life that I can be praying for? Who, what relationships or possible relationships or introductions have you providentially given to me that I can be praying for these guys? And as I have my eyes up and as I look around, guys, let me ask you, we put a name on this list of a man that uh, we think might be a target for us. And we pray for him. Don't see him that much, but we, we pray for him. And we pray for him every day for four weeks. Haven't seen the man. But after four weeks and after four weeks of praying for this guy, I run on to him wherever I run on to him, on the soccer field, the marketplace, whatever. Guys, what is the first thing that's going to come to my mind when I see that guy's face? I can promise you it's going to be, I've been praying for this guy. Is this the opportunity that God's given me? Oh, Lord Jesus, help me direct the conversation towards the thing of God. Help me have the courage to interact with this man about reconciliation with you. We need to have our eyes up and be looking around. Paul, Barnabas, Timothy. Guys, it does uh, the priest of God well to have each one of these three relationships in his life. Uh, Trevor talked about the two when he talks about 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, I've poured my life into you. I've invested my life into you. I've helped you grow in spiritual maturity. And now that I've done that, I want you to go do that 
with others. I want you to do that to someone else. So men, if, if I don't have a Paul in my life, it does me well to go find somebody who can feed me, who can help me grow to maturity. And likewise, the priest of God has Timothy's in his life. Men that he is pouring his life into. Men that he is investing in. Men that he is opening the scriptures with and teaching, helping come to spiritual maturity. And a Barnabas. Barnabas is a, a, a co-laborer, right? Another brother who, like-minded brother, who has the vision and an understanding of E squared and is living it out in his everyday life. And we encourage one another. We help one another. We do well to have uh, each one of these relationships in our, in our lives. Understand your purpose. Universal and unique. Guys, biblically, our purpose is to uh, bring glory to God as we participate with Him, as we become prepared for an eternity with Him in heaven. We tend to look at this world, or excuse me, this life that we have as the big game, right? As our chance to make a name for ourselves or maximize our enjoyment out of this life. But the scriptures tell me this life is like a grain of sand on the beach of eternity. And what I do with this life will affect what that beach of eternity looks like. So this game isn't, we're in baseball. I see y'all looking at your phones, checking the scores. We're in baseball playoff season right now, right? So we tend to look at our life here as October, right? It's, it's playoff time. It's time to go get it and make it happen and, and, uh, it's not. If I read the scriptures, this, is, this life is the preseason. This life is in the preseason as I prepare myself to spend eternity with him in the big game. So I need to have that universal purpose in focus. I go down to the shipyard and I see these big massive ships. And I don't see it, but I know underneath they have a rudder. Right, And the, the way that that rudder is directed, just a few degrees one way or the other, will change in a few days the trajectory of that ship by hundreds of miles. And guys, so it is with us and our purpose. Our purpose is like the rudder of our life that directs us and keeps us moving in the direction we go. And underneath that universal purpose, God made us each differently with a different blend of, u- of uh, unique personality and talents and experiences, roles. How has God uniquely made me to be involved in what he's doing underneath the umbrella of E squared, right? How has he made me in a unique way that I can maximize my potential in being involved in what he's doing? The priest of God thinks about these things. Yes, sir. Number six. Can I take a couple steps back um, to agreement versus obedience? You talked about a Christian living the cafeteria Christian life. What are some of the dangers, uh, pitfalls, or consequences in, in picking only what you want to live out? Yeah. And discarding the rest? Yeah. Well, I would suggest to you, one, I'm not going to be pleasing to God. He says, the man of God is diligent about being a man of the word. Being a man of the word, you know, 
We serve a God. We serve a God who is never changing, right? He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? This is his communicated word to us. It has relevance and it is true yesterday, today, and forever. So the pitfalls are as I pick and choose what I, what I want to accept and what I want to put in my life out of the scriptures, I'm handicapping myself in my Christian walk. I'm handicapping myself in my ability to think like Christ, to make, to have wisdom, to make decisions. Jesus says in those, in those Matthew 14 verses, he says, he who has my commandments, he who loves me keeps my commandments. And he goes on and he says, and my father will love him and will disclose himself to him. If I want, if I want the God of the universe, men, to disclose himself to me, to reveal himself to me, I suggest to you that we be in the business of obedience. We be in the business of cleaning our minds up, of not only agreeing with the scriptures, but of taking these scriptures and putting them into our minds. Does that help? Any other questions? Significance. Guys, uh, what is my source what is my source of significance? I would suggest to you we are we are we are conditioned as children from the time we are children on up to find our significance in a multitude of diff- different places, all of which will never satisfy or actually provide us significance. Whether it's how good our grades are as kids, how good we are athletics, how funny we are. Or as an adult, am I now significant because of my position, power, and influence, my success in the marketplace, how good I am at sports, my sense of humor, my wit, whatnot. Man, men, the priest of God, the man of God needs to understand that he is significant for one and one reason only. And that's because The God of the universe says, I made you, and I choose you to be my son. So I impute to you and give to you significance. You you have no value in and of yourselves. You have value because I gave you value. You are significant because I chose you, and my son died for you. So the priest of God who's thinking correctly no longer has to go out and find significance or search for significance in all these other areas that the world tells us will make us feel like we have value and significance because I know that I've got it and I do have value and I do have significance, but it's only because it's through God. It's only because he gave it to me. Significance comes from God alone. Dedicate yourself to the eternal. Guys, the priest of God has a clear focus of giving himself to the eternal, not to the temporal. And uh, as I look at the scriptures, the scriptures say that uh, the earth will pass away with a roar. The elements and everything in the earth will be destroyed with intense heat. Everything will go. But there are only two things that are eternal. And what are those two things that are eternal? The word of God and people, right? Souls, people. 
So as I go about my life, understanding my purpose, understanding that I'm a priest of God, understanding that I've been given the message of reconciliation, understanding that the relationships that God has providentially given me are to be used for evangelism and edification, understanding that my significance comes from God alone. I'm freed up to focus on his word and on people. I no longer need to look at people as what I can get from them and what they can do for me, but I can look at people as God sees them, as eternal beings, that what can they get from me and what can I give to them? It fundamentally changes the way we view our relationships and view people. And last men, blessed hope. Men, it does, does us well as priests of God to having clear focus, having clear focus, the blessed hope, the return of Jesus Christ. The early Christians in Acts did have this in focus, and they did have their priesthood, I would suggest to you, in focus, living as ministers where they, where they, where they were. The degree to which, how much would affect how much will it affect every day of my life if I wake up and put my two feet on the ground and slide up, rub the sleep out of my eyes and look out over the horizon and say, today could be the day. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let today be the day. How different if I'm thinking about Christ's return and eagerly awaiting his return. Does that help me keep my focus when I go out of my home and I enter, I exit out and enter into the world as I look at those relationships, how much does that help me as I recognize no one according to the flesh but see them as God sees them? A blessed hope. So men, uh, that's all I have for you. Be encouraged as you go about exercising your rightful right as a priest, a priest of God. Any questions before I leave? Y'all look like you've been rode hard and put away wet. Been a long week, huh? Thank you.